Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you grab them? We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9 again this week. And I'll just, as you're turning there, add my word of welcome this morning. It's good to be together, brothers and sisters, on the second week of Advent as we prepare our hearts to, for, the, for the light to shine through Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, our text today, same as it was last week, it will be verses 9, I mean chapter 9, verse, verses 2 through 7. The Word of God says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you pray with me one more time as we seek the Lord? Father, we we have come here this morning because we want to worship you. We want to fellowship as saints together, Christians, and we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. It is our greatest need, you. And so, Father, we come expectantly and with faith, believing that you can work now in making yourself known to us and and clear to us, your word clear to us. We pray that the Spirit would open our minds that we might behold the wonderful things in your word. And Lord, I pray for those among us who are suffering this morning. I add my word of prayer too, Lord. Agree with what's been prayed. And we pray, Lord, that as as the shadows seemingly deepen, we would see the light of Christ. I pray today that you will encourage those who come to this place discouraged. That you will give strength to those who come weak. And joy to those who come joyless. Give us all joy in Christ this morning. May we rejoice in the God of our salvation, the mighty God who saves us. Please help me as I try to handle your word well this morning. Use this time, use me in all of my weakness for your glory and your might. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by reading a couple of lines of one of my favorite songs written by one of my favorite artists. It's called, Is He Worthy? by Andrew Peterson. 
So his song goes, you've probably heard it, it's taken from this song. It says, do you feel the world is broken? And the people respond, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Of course, the song goes on to demonstrate that there is one, there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. There is one who is worthy to break the seal, to open the scroll. The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, he, he's worthy. That song in my mind is Advent. All four weeks of it rolled up into one song. We feel the world is broken. We sense the shadows deepening. We long to see it all made new. All creation is indeed groaning, and we look for the one who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. The one whom we know to be Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the one who conquered death in the grave in his resurrection, the one who made atonement for our sin, the one who lived a sinless life, the one who was the one who made an atonement for our sin, was wrapped in swaddling clothes when he was born, laid in a manger, was born to a virgin in a little village, the one whom the angels announced that night to the shepherds would be good news of great joy for all the people. The one Isaiah promised 700 years before the one in our text, Isaiah 9, is all about. He is worthy Advent is not merely a religious thing we do because it comes up on the liturgical calendar once a year. Rather, it is an intentional reminder that in the darkness, in the darkness, the light shines. Just as we feel the shadows deepen, we are reminded of the hope that we have in the Lion of Judah. I love Advent, I and I love that we do it. I love that we do Advent this time of year. And this time of year, it's so appropriate, right? <laughs> it's so appropriate. We have a visible reminder of the growing darkness. The days become so short, don't they? Today, I drove to church in the dark. <laughs> I have to get here just a tad bit before you do. And by the time Advent completes and we have Christmas morning, the days are the shortest of the year. Just a few days after the shortest day of the year, we have a good picture of this. And then Christ comes, and the sun shines more and more. Advent's a reminder. And I think we need reminders, don't you? You need a reminder? I need reminders. Reminders of hope. That's what we're doing again this morning, reminding you of the hope that we have right as the darkness seems to be winning. And I pray that the Lord would use this to stoke the fires of our faith and our love and our joy. So this is week two in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Last week, as you may recall, if you were here, we did a fly over this passage. We noted some of the landmarks. We also did a flyby of one of the titles in Isaiah 9, 6, Wonderful Counselor. We saw that this counselor, the one who steps into our world and shows us the way, is no fallible counselor. He, he doesn't give mixed advice. He doesn't lead astray. He is the wonderful counselor who is himself the way. Today is our second flyover, second 
Passover, this passage that we're focusing on, and we're really focusing in on the second title, the name of the child who is born and the son that was given is Mighty God. His name shall be Mighty God. Why is it significant that Isaiah calls this child, this son, Mighty God? And what does that do for my faith and my hope and my love and my joy as we feel the shadows deepen? That's where we're going this morning. May the Lord use it to build our faith. So, verse 9-6 says, His name shall be Mighty God. There's two words in that title, and both of them are vital to understanding the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's take them one at a time, shall we? We'll begin with God. The Bible clearly teaches... Without any ambiguity, the Bible clearly teaches here and in many other places that Jesus Christ is truly God. The truth has been under attack since the earliest days of Christianity. In fact, the creed that we read responsively this morning was the fruit of the first ecumenical council of the church, the first council of Nicaea, when the church came together and debated the nature of Christ and his relationship to the Father. And they agreed in that council, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is begotten, not made. He is truly God, true God from true God, as the words go. He is divine, and indeed the Bible teaches exactly that. Today, other religions, like Islam, for example, even, even, even religions that accept the, the person of Christ reject, certainly the large cults do this, they reject his deity, they reject that he is God. I don't know if you've ever heard of the New World Translation. This is a translation of the scriptures that is used by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Some who have maybe knocked on your door have been carrying the New World Translation. It isn't really a translation, though, because it purposely distorts important passages of the Bible, especially passages which teach or imply, or even simply appear to imply, the deity of Jesus Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, for example, in the English Standard Version, the version I read from this morning, in the English Standard Version, John 1.1, 1, 1, which I believe is a very good translation of the Greek text, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. An excellent translation the NWT, however, translates that in a way that's not honest. John 1.1 1, 1 in the NWT says, The Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was a God. And they use a little lowercase g for that second God. Was a lowercase g God. They add the article, and they use a little g. And indefinite articles matter, friends. This little one-letter word changes the entire meaning of John 1.1. 1, 1. And they did that on purpose. They did that on purpose. There's no textual or contextual reason to translate that like that. They just couldn't accept that his name shall be mighty God. However, the context of John 1 makes the deity of Christ absolutely clear. Look for a moment with me there at John 1. Turn in your Bibles if we're... John 1, please. Look at verse 3, John 1, 3. 
So all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. Now, we know that this is talking about Jesus, because down in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and then verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, everything made, that means everything created was created through Christ, right? Everything in the universe that was created, according to this verse, was created through Christ, To deny that Jesus is God is to say that he was created, that he was created. He's not God, he's created. Everything outside of God is created. God is the creator, everything else he created. So to deny that Jesus is God is to say that he was created, but that renders John 1, 3 as nonsense, doesn't it? If Christ were made, then he is a created being, and according to John 1, 3, he made himself. He was made through himself, and that doesn't make any sense. Jesus is God. That's what makes sense of John 1, 3 and so many other passages. It's explicit in John 1, 1. If you want another verse, here's Hebrews 1, 8. There's lots. I could, I could really spend time building a, a biblical defense, but Hebrews 1, 8 says, But of the Son, he, the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your throne, O God. And again, I could go on and on with the biblical defense of the deity of Christ. He was worshipped. He didn't stop the worship. That would have been idolatry if he's not God. He made clear claims of divinity. Jesus made clear claims of divinity. So clear, in fact, that at a few times, one example is in John 10. You don't have to turn there, but John 10, 30 and 31. The Jews picked up stones to kill him. Because they knew what he was saying when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. You might have heard C.S. Lewis's famous quote, the poached egg quote that's referred to. It's one of my favorite quotes from Lewis. In Mere Christianity, Lewis said this. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that, o- that option open to us. He didn't intend to. Friends, I think that's exactly right. Either Jesus is the Son of God, or he is a madman, or something worse. He didn't leave other options open to us. And this is crucial. Because only God can reconcile man with God. Only, only God can do that work. I don't want to linger here too long, but we've, we have to see that reconciliation is entirely a work of God, and that's why it's vital for us to see Christ as God. 
and not some mere man, some moral teacher. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Only God, only God can do this work. Only God can reconcile sinful man with a holy God. Man cannot do this. That's kind of the point of the gospel, isn't it? Man cannot do this. You cannot do this. It's the point of Isaiah 9. Man cannot do this, but God can. God can. And it is God who has done it in Christ. So it matters, friend. The second word in this second title matters massively. In fact, I'm not sure what could matter more. His name shall be Mighty God. Now for the word mighty. This is a work that mighty God shall do. And consider with me again the original context. We did this last week, but I think it's helpful to do it again. This is 700 plus years before Christ, right? The mighty Assyrians, the mighty Assyrians, one of the up and coming power nations of the earth during those days was about to come and sweep Judah away off into captivity. There was no army. There was no army between Judah and the Assyrians. No army powerful enough to stop Assyria. They were that powerful. They were that mighty. And they were about to march. So the sense of doom, the darkness of sure defeat was looming over them. And then you have to wonder, is there any hope for Judah? They had to be wondering that, right? And I'd wonder that. I'm a practical guy. I look at numbers it looked pretty grim. And indeed it was. Judah was defeated, carried off into exile. They were definitely a people who had dwelt in deep darkness. And as people who live in this world today with its darkness, we don't have trouble relating to that. The world and its values seem mighty, like a big army. We can see many problems and issues and sins, and they feel, frankly, way too big for us. It wouldn't surprise me a bit if you shared with me your problems, that they are so big in your mind that your sense is that there's no hope for you. Your marriage problem is big. Your sin struggle is big. The darkness is dark. You feel that way this morning? Like there's no hope for your situation? If you do, then you can relate with the mood and the tone of Isaiah 9. You can relate with the people who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness. You can feel the world is broken. You can feel the shadows deepen. You can feel creation groaning. All of that can feel like there's no hope. Darkness, darkness feels mighty. And it's on the march. Who is strong enough to stand in between us and that mighty darkness? There is one, of course, and when it feels like all hope was lost, light shone in the darkness, when all hope is gone, the mighty God comes and saves us. That sounds like a plot line for a great movie, doesn't it? Let's do something just for fun. I mean, it's not just for fun, but work with me here. I'm going to name a few movies, some of which you might have seen. And I want you to ponder what these movies have in common, okay? So, I'll just start with this one because you're expecting it. The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, 
The Chronicles of Narnia. By the way, this isn't like a, a, I'm not like saying go watch these movies. Just work with me on this thought project, okay? Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Chronicles of Narnia, The Matrix, The Dark Knight Trilogy, The Avengers, Shawshank Redemption, The Princess Bride, Hunger Games, The Wizard of Oz, The Terminator. Did you ever think you'd hear that in a sermon? (laughs) The Lion King, The Incredibles, and pretty much every Western epic you've ever watched. What do all of these stories have in common? What all of these movies have in common is that in the end, good triumphs over evil. Some form of good, sometimes it's corrupted, but good triumphs over evil. In fact, most of these stories, good triumphs over evil when all hope seems to be lost. When there's only darkness and only doom and evil is spreading and people are resigned to their own, to their dark fate, feeling hopeless, and then boom, Gandalf appears and the sun shines and trolls turn to stone. It's a familiar storyline, isn't it? It's the storyline of most of the movies I've listed and most of our most beloved stories in the West. And just as an aside, I don't, I, when I started watching Russian movies, I was taken back by the lack of these kind of plot lines. This is free. This has nothing to do with my sermon. But some of their stories, especially the classic ones, do have good triumphing over evil in their plot lines. But, the, but lots of the recent ones, the ones coming from communism and so on, uh, lack this completely. It's perfectly okay and pretty common, I think, for the protagonist, the hero of the story, to perish at the end of a Russian story. And, and not perish like you know, William Wallace perished, and then they cut to a starving army who fought like Scots and won, you know. No, this is like the hero of the story getting hit by a bus, roll credits. You know, that's Russian stories for you, but not in the West. Why is it that we have all these stories in the West that have good triumphing over evil in the end? The dawn shining on a seemingly unending night. When we've given up all hope, Hope crashes in and saves the day. Isn't that the plot line of the gospel? Honestly, I think this is why it's popular these days to preach sermon series on popular movies. I promise I'll never do that. I don't don't think that's what we should do on Sundays. But the reason many do it is because they can see the plot line of the gospel in those movies. Darkness is winning. And then light shines triumphantly, even savingly. Now, a skeptic would say that the gospel must be just one of those kind of stories. Maybe this is just a storyline in the human heart, and we just like those kind of stories, and the gospel is just one of those stories, and this just happens to be one that millions cling to. That's what the skeptic would say. The gospel is the same human plot line. Evil is winning, darkness prevailing, and then boom, mighty hero crashes in and saves the day. But I think it's plain that the gospel is not like those stories at all. Rather, the gospel is not like those stories. Those stories are like the gospel. All of those stories are like the gospel. It's not the other way around. I think Timothy Keller was right when he said the gospel is the true story behind all the other stories. And the reason we love those kinds of stories is because we, in our heart of hearts, long for rescue. We can feel the world is broken. We lie awake awake at night worrying about the shadows that are deepening in our world, in our lives. 
We know deep down that we need saving, and there's no hope in this world. The darkness is mighty. But instead of turning to God, the mighty God who brings salvation, we turn to everything else. Our hope in finding something mighty enough to stop the mighty darkness, we look everywhere for that. We look for our hero. It's no wonder that Israel made a golden calf and then proclaimed, this is the God who delivered you out of Egypt. This this calf, this statue that were earrings not long ago, that's your God. That's who rescued you. That's what we do. That's at the heart of all idolatry. We know we need deliverance. And in our pride and our bent away from God, we turn to anything and everything for that deliverance. We turn to money, we turn to career, we turn to pleasure and comfort. We turn ultimately to doctors, medicine, and therapies. Not that those things are bad, but we look at those things as ultimate. We turn to our own strength. We turn to that myth of control any way we can have it. We're on the hunt. This is the point. We're on the hunt for something to save us. But everywhere we turn, we're let down. You felt that? You're let down. Because we find that money and pleasure and comfort ends up not being mighty enough. The calf is just a calf. The darkness is mightier. The longing is mightier. The loneliness is mightier. You see, friends, there is one who is mighty to save. And I am preaching this morning so that you will turn to him. In Advent, we are shown the one true story behind all the other stories. The darkness is seemingly hopeless. The helplessness abounds and our, because of our sin and our rebellion. And then mighty God crashes in and saves the day. He intervenes. Isn't it amazing that this mighty God would come so humbly? Isaiah 9, 6 says, unto us a child is born. A child. I mean, have you, have you held a, a newborn infant recently? Some of you have. I don't think mighty when I hold a child. They're small. They're fragile. They're vulnerable. Herod knew this and sought to slay the child before he became strong enough to overthrow him. Remember? Man is humble. Man is a humble, weak being. Even though we pretend we're not, we are humble, weak, and a child is the weakest of man. And in that humility and seeming weakness, the mighty God stepped in to save us. Jesus is mighty God, and he has come to save us, and he has saved us in the most unimagined way. He he lived a sinless life, pointing us to the Father And he died as a substitute for us, making atonement for our sins. And then he rose again, conquering the grave, making a public spectacle of death and crushing the head of Satan. Jesus is his name. Mighty God is his name. And friends, we have hope today in the mightiest dark seasons of our life, the mightiest darkness we can face. We have hope today in our mighty God, even when all Around, hope seems lost. God, who in Zephaniah 3.17 says is mighty to save, he comes and he mightily saves us. 
I love the image in, in, in Isaiah 9.5. Look, look back one, one verse from where we're hovering today. It says, for every boot, Isaiah 9.5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment is rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Maybe that doesn't make sense right away, but if you give it a little bit of thought, it's not that hard. You can, you can imagine what he's saying here. You can understand how this image fits into his poem. When the battle's over, you no longer have any use for the battle gear. So on a cold night after the war is over, and one, you and your family, you're sitting by the fireplace, and you notice there's no more wood, and you don't want to venture out into the cold to gather more wood, right? So you start thinking, what can I throw into that fire? I know. Those old military boots that I don't need anymore, they're flammable. Let's burn those. Boots. We won't be needing those anymore, so let's chuck those in the fire. And that cloak that's got blood on it from the battle, let's burn that too. Fuel for the fire. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult burned as fuel for the fire. I think that's the image, but you know what? It can go both ways, can't it? Is this your boot? Like, is this your boot from the battle that you no longer need? Or is this the boot of your enemy that has fallen and that he won't, he certainly won't need anymore? I think it's both. Death is dead in the death of Christ. He slays the old enemy. He won't be needing his boots anymore. Sin is dead. Satan is dead. The world, the flesh, the devil, all of the dark army marching our way, gone. They won't be needing their boots. Not in Christ. They're done. And I know, friends, we live in this already not yet experience of that reality. We use that phrase a lot, and it's very, very helpful. Already not yet. There is a sense already in Christ that that's true, but it's not fully realized yet. That's why we still see sin and death. We're still waiting for an advent, but that advent, like the first one, will certainly come. The assurance of victory is absolute. So these are the boots of my enemies, right? Put them in the fire, let's get warm. But they're also my own boots that I won't be needing anymore. The boots of my self-effort. The boots of my vain attempts to rescue myself from darkness and sin and peril and all of that. I won't be needing those old boots anymore. Because I have turned from my own weak, insufficient efforts and looked by faith to the mighty God. I looked to Christ by faith, the one who came and conquered and saved, and the one who will come again. Isn't that a helpful image? Brothers and sisters, it's a cold night. Let's burn some boots by faith. For unto us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and his name shall be Mighty God. Oh, friends, you have hope this morning. You have hope. You who are weary, you have hope. You who dwell in the deep darkness of your sin. You who reel from the consequences and shame of your past choices. You have hope. We have hope. His name is Jesus, and Jesus is mighty to save is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, David's root, and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave, he is worthy 
He is worthy. He is worthy of this. He is. Mighty problems need a mighty God. Won't you turn to Christ today? Won't you turn and trust to him for the hard things you're facing in life? Trust him with your grief. Trust him with your sin. Trust him with all those giant question marks in your life right now. Trust Christ with your life. Burn some boots. He is worthy of this. He is. He is mighty to save. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you, so good to us, so kind, would strengthen our faith this morning in you. That you turn us from the idols. You turn us from those things that we look to to save us in vain. And we would turn to the mighty God who comes, who came, and who comes again. Lord, I pray for anyone who comes here this morning not understanding that truth. Oh Lord, today, today, may it be the day that you open their eyes and their mind, and their hearts, and they turn. They turn by faith to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.